0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Muscoota, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So listen, we're going through the three letters in a row. And so if you're newer to Mercy's Door, I spotted a bunch of faces that are new to me, or, or at least we're not on a first name basis yet. I want to welcome you guys here this morning. Uh, one of the kind of staple rhythms of Mercy's Door is that we preach left to right through full books of the Bible. And so there's a lot of context that you might miss out on if you show up in the middle of a book. And so I try to do what I can in the beginning of a sermon uh, to try to get everybody up to speed and then kind of let the text take us where it wants to take us. And so, last week we finished the letter of 1 John, and this week we're starting 2 John. Next week we're going to do uh, 3 John, and then we're going to move on to another book of the Bible. Um, But I wanted to thank Chaplain Howard for your work in landing the plane. uh, Last week in in, second, er, in First John, and uh, that gospel presentation was really beautiful, and when I got to gospel community, it turned out that there were all kinds of questions about some of the verses in the middle section of that text, and so I took some time over the weekend uh, to write up a pastoral letter to send out to you guys for your own personal study. That went out to the email distribution list this morning, um, so if you're not on that, you can go to merciesdoor.org and click on like, connect with us or something like that, and you can get yourself added uh, to that email distribution list. Um, but somebody in your GC has it if you didn't get it, and if you're looking for something like that, you can turn there. Uh, but this morning, we're going to continue into Second John. Now, there's speculation, and it's not, uh, I don't think, knowable with certainty whether or not this speculation is true, but I'm inclined to believe it, that uh, John wrote all three of these letters at the same time, and that he intended for them to be delivered together. Uh, some speculate that the intention of 1 John was that it would be widely disseminated amongst the churches, that 2 John is addressed to a specific local church, and that 3 John is, is addressed to specific individuals within a specific church. And so there's almost this narrowing focus of the pastor's energy in the writing of these letters. And in Second and Third John, he says, I lo- I'm not going to waste pen and ink. I'm going to come and see you here in a minute, and I'll talk to you face to face. And so there's evidence that that is how this thing works out. Um, If you weren't here for the First John Sermon Series, then you'll remember that I taught that at the end of John's life, for the last portion of his ministry after he had finished caring for Jesus' mother in Jerusalem, he relocated to Ephesus and ended his days there as an elder over a network of house churches in the Ephesus area. And the Ephesian church had been planted by Paul in decades prior to John becoming one of the shepherds of the Ephesian church and so we're talking about letters from a pastor to Christians that he knew and who he was living among over a network of house churches that he loved, okay? And we're going to see some of the heart of that shepherd here again in 2 John, and he opens his letter in this interesting way where he says the elder doesn't name himself. We'll remember a fine detail that John never names himself, not at any point in his gospel, Not in any point in any of his three letters does he name himself. It's common for him to do that, I think, as an act of humility. But he just says, The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but all who know the truth, verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And I love that this stands out to me, and I just want to hold it out to you guys as well. I love that John just calls himself the elder, and that it is assumed that on receipt of this letter that everyone knows who wrote this letter. It suggests that there was an assumption of, of intimate relationship here, where John has no need to name himself in order for his recipients to know who penned this. He just calls himself the elder. It's almost like writing a letter to a friend and just being like, hey, it's me. Hey, it's me. There's a familiarity there. It's me, John. To the elect lady, and her children, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on stuff that I don't need to spend a lot of time on. I want you just to be aware that there are a bunch of different viewpoints on who the elect lady is and her children, and I've studied them, and we can talk about them. I don't find most of the interpretations to be credible. The elect lady is the church that he's writing to, it's language like how you might, a guy might talk about his car, like when he calls her she, or maybe when I talk to you guys and I, and I say mercy's door or beloved or my friends or things like that where we kind of substitute language. He's using an affectionate term to address this specific body of believers, calling them "elect," the elect lady and her children. And this should be taken to mean you beautiful chosen people of God and all the members contained within. And at this time when he's writing this, you've got to remember how long the Ephesian church has existed. This is maybe the first church to have multiple generations of Christians within the same body. And at this point, John, who calls himself the elder, is probably the oldest living Christian. Most of his friends have been martyred at the time that he's writing these things. He's certainly been walking with Jesus longer than any person who lives at the time that he's writing this letter. So when he calls himself the elder, he's not just talking about his office as a pastor. He's also talking about the old guy who's been walking with Jesus for a bit here, writing to a specific church that I love, this elect lady, this chosen beautiful one of God, this remnant of, of the elect in, in Ephesus and her children. And when he says, and her children, I think he at minimum means all the members, he's addressing all the members of that church who make up that elect lady, but I think he's also addressing the generations that there are those who came to faith on account of the testimony of the first generation in the church in Ephesus. So he's saying, to you, the originals, and to you, those who have come into the fold through the testimony of the originals, the elect lady and her children. And as he addresses them, hey, it's me, John, writing to you guys, the elect lady and her children. He says, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. So the opening of his letter, just modernizing it for us, is it's me, John, writing to you the ones I love. And it's not just I who love you, but it's all who know the truth. You are beloved to all who know the truth, to all Christians. And this has continuity from his first letter, doesn't it? As he does this labor all throughout 1 John to tell you who your brother is and how you ought to love them. He says, I'm your brother, you're my sister, and I love you, and they all love you, all of us. In the, he's writing from a specific church in Ephesus as well. I and all of us love you and all of you. Because, verse 2, of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, when he says that he loves the church that he's writing to because of a truth that abides in him, he's established in 1 John what that means, to have the truth abiding in you. It's the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit who baptized you, that made you a Christian, who indwells you and has made you a new creation, who produces the love of God towards the loved of God. And we talked about this specific love in First John that, that John holds out to us, that the love between believers ought to be a particular and a peculiar love that is bound by something eternal. If the purpose of First John was, that, that was to assure you that you have eternal life, and hopefully you got that, if nothing else, from our sermon series through First John, if the purpose of the first letter is to assure the church you have eternal life, the purpose of 2 John is to write to these who have eternal life about how they navigate this side of eternity with one another and how they discern who is in and who is not in and how should that uh, change the way that I interact with you. In the first century, uh, you guys will we'll think of, just think about it practically. The Roman Empire had successfully spread across the face of the earth, and one of the benefits of the Roman Empire were roads. And the roads that were built all throughout that region of the earth allowed for ease of travel. And so naturally that the Lord used that in the hands of the apostles and the first century church to spread the gospel quickly in the first century. It was amazing. But unlike in the days of antiquity, where there were not well-developed roads, and communities were tight-knit, and there was not a lot of intermixing from one city to the next, now you were going to have itinerant travelers coming through your area more often than you were used to in the past. And so it became necessary to start teaching about and talking about, how do you receive a stranger? Because receiving strangers is a thing now, and it's happening all the time. And strangers are coming in the name of Christ, claiming to be your brother people I've never met, saying, I'm one of you. How are we to receive them? Now, in the first century, there is this church document that's like a manual for the church in rural Syria. I don't know how to say it. I think it's Didache, Didache, maybe. I don't know. Don't speak Greek but this document, this first century document, essentially is just like Second John, and it talks about uh, all of the ways in which you are to extend Christian hospitality, and some of the language that you'll see in that document, it talks about essentially what's their doctrine, what are they saying about Jesus, that's the first test of whether or not this is your brother to tell you how to receive them. Number two, after you've checked their, their doctrine, is what is their motive, Do they appear to be coming for the cause of Christ or are they coming for some self-serving cause? And one of the ways that you are to test that, according to this document, which is not the Bible, is that you would uh, kind of assess what their attitude towards money and lodging was. Because there are these commands for you to receive your brothers in Christ warmly, to let them into your home, to extend your whole self to them. And this became a known thing. And apparently in the first century, as I'm traveling around on these free roads, I can stay somewhere if I just say I'm a teacher or that I say that I'm a Christian, or even worse, rather than just kind of freeloading, which might be something that somebody was concerned about, I can actually accumulate for myself a following and even maybe take an offering unto myself if I proclaim that I am an itinerant teacher for Christ. And so there is this teaching given How do we deal with this? How do we discern who a stranger is, whether or not he is our brother? I would say that's the central teaching of the application of 2 John. 1 John, who is your brother and how do you love him? 2 John, what do you do when somebody comes and says he's your brother, but he's not? But I love you, and all the Christians love you, John says in in 2 John verse 1 and 2. I love you and all the Christians love you because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. I love you on account of the love that is within me, God himself loving you through me, God in you loving me through you, and he will be with us forever. And this is my last sidebar before I just preach what's in here. When he talks about a love and a truth that will abide in us and will be with us forever— What stood out to me pastorally as I uh, sat and just thought about what this means for you guys and what it means for me is that it's distinctly different from all the other types of loves and all the other forms of truth. Now, I come from, I'll keep it brief, but I come from a somewhat broken home. My parents split when I was a teenager. And so my story looks like a story of two fathers. There was my father, rest his soul, who was there, and then there was the father who was not. And in the days after the split i talked to my dad maybe once a year but before that he like coached my baseball team it's like a core wound from childhood addressed and in that i learned a kind of a broken thing that that comes into my life with god and i want you guys to think about how your story has impacted the way that you relate to god and to the church that says that the love and the relationships with which i engage there's no real permanency to it it's not real solid it's not dependable i can't know for sure that this will still be here tomorrow. Well, so what you do if you've endured some type of loss like that, whether it was a relational breaking, a wayward child, a death, or something like that, is you go looking to find that permanency or stability somewhere else, generally speaking. And a lot of us, I think, do that with our careers. I've seen that in, in our context where If I can improve my worth or improve my meaning through my performance, then I'm going to accumulate for myself people who value me based on what I do. And if people value me based on what I do, I can trust that they're not going to go anywhere because they need me or because they value what I bring to the table. Now, I remember I did this early on in my career. I think it was a natural response. And in my career, I got started in hospitals. I got promoted three times within the same hospital. I began to think of myself as irreplaceable. And this was something that was really important to me, to become irreplaceable as somebody who grew up feeling replaced. And then the day came where I met my wife. I married her, adopted a child. She gave birth to a child, and I needed another raise. And I was pursued by the University of Chicago for a management opportunity that was gonna meet that need, but I was very loyal to the company where I'd been promoted three times because they need me and they love me and they want me. So I sat down with my vice president. I told him, listen, I've got an offer. Here's the letter. I'm loyal to you guys. I don't wanna go anywhere, but here's the deal. My first loyalty is to my wife and kids. What can you guys do? He said, man, we love you. We can do this, can't do that, sorry. And I felt so hurt. And I, like, in spite, like, took the other opportunity. Then the other opportunity, after a couple of years, there were four of me in that role. We worked together every day. I came into work one day after about three years, and we all came in like we always did, had our coffee that morning like we always did. About an hour later, I was the only one left with a job. The other three were fired on the spot, no cause, due to a restructuring. And I looked up in this company that had used words like family and all of that, it wasn't really a family, not when, not, not, not if the, the plan no longer made sense. We're going to go another direction. And Then you look up and you're like, okay, well, where, what else can I build a relationship around? These shared interests, right? A lot of you guys are doing this. And your hobbies, uh, you know, my, my best friends or my, my, my closest relationships are based on my shared hobbies or a shared mission or a shared anything. For me, maybe the one, the one remaining hobby I've got from, from, from childishness and boyhood is fantasy baseball. I'm a baseball geek, stat head, nerd. I acknowledge it. And I've got friends that I've been doing this for like 20 years with. They get married, they have kids, they decide that this, there's no longer any room in their capacity for this. And then we never speak again. Because the relationship was built on a shared interest and you take the interest away and there's nothing of substance left. And what you learn as you walk throughout this life and you try to forge connections and relationships, love and truth that are built on these lesser temporal things is that they're all vanishing like a vapor in the wind and that there's no real permanence. But John opens up his letter with a completely different assumption. He says there is an elect lady and her children that he is addressing who he loves in truth, not just him, but all of those who know the truth describing a family because of a truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Forever forever? Like, can you conceive forever? Can I preach to you for however many weeks First John was that you have eternal life? And maybe some of you are taking one inch towards believing that truth, and you're like, oh my gosh, I think I believe this. I really have eternal life. Well, guess what the next thing is? For you to turn to your left, turn to your right, and be like, and that guy's got eternal life too. And that girl's got eternal life too. That means that the people around you right now, who you worship your king with on a Sunday morning, singing songs of exaltation to him, gathering, pouring over the words of Christ, trying to understand them, and you do that together in community, you're going to be with them forever. Eternally, these are your brothers and sisters, and there's nothing you can do about it. John wants to talk about what that means as far as walking out this side of eternity with your eternal brothers and sisters and what it does not mean when that when somebody does not meet that description. He moves into verse 3 to talk about what it is that makes this so and he mentions grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ. The Father, Son, in truth and love. This is a fairly standard greeting in apostolic letters grace, mercy, and peace. When we talk about grace, we're talking about grace to the guilty and the undeserving. When we talk about mercy, we are talking about mercy to the needy and the helpless. When we talk about peace, we're talking about the restoration of harmony with God and our salvation in Jesus Christ. Friends, mercy's door think about it what makes you brothers and sisters eternally is that grace and mercy in christ jesus has been poured out on you giving you peace with god you are the family who has peace with god Wherever else, relationally, you lack peace. Wherever else, relationally, you lack mercy and grace. Wherever you have asked the world to be for you what the world cannot be for you, the Lord in Christ Jesus has been that for you, and he has secured for you eternal peace through his grace and mercy. It will be with us. It's from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. and It is in us in truth and in love. And so now he's going to move into this idea of truth and love. And you guys have probably heard teaching on truth and love. It'll be said to you, and it's correct, that we don't want in our uh, loyalty to the truth to compromise our loyalty to the truth in order to be loving, that somehow truth gets sacrificed in order to be loving. And you'll hear it said the same thing, that we don't want to sacrifice love in order to be truthful, right? Like there's always been sermons preached a thousand times on how to hold these things in tension. But my concern as I talk to you guys this morning is that there's been decades of teaching about truth and love as if they are in tension, as if they are opposed to one another, as if there's this difficult calling that Christians have to try to find that balance between truth and love that if I'm too truthful, now I'm unloving. If I'm too loving, now I'm untruthful. And I need you guys to hear that as a category error, that for the Christian, there is no truth that is unloving, and there is no love that is untruthful. That's not a category for the Christian. And the world is never short on teachers who will tell you other than that who will tell you to suppress the truth, to not say that thing because that's not loving, or, or the other side who will tell you that love comes second to truth, and listen, like, I, I, and I'm going to bully you and, and weaponize the truth in order for, for, to your harm rather than for your good because look at how brave I am with how prophetic I am, with how willing I am to say the hard thing with no regard whatsoever for you. No. These things are not pitted against one another. These things are necessarily intertwined because our God is truth and love and our God indwells us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Your love is truthful and your truth is loving. If your truth is not loving, you're not speaking the truth. And if your love is not truthful, then it is not loving. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth Verse 4, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. When we read about walking in the truth, John John kind of holds it out in this way, that this is love. That love is that we walk according to the commandments. And this is what I'm trying to say to you, that if the words of God and all the words that have proceeded from his mouth are the truth, and walking in, in, in um, uh, conformity to the words that have proceeded from the mouth of God is love, then we never have to decide which one to do. Walk in the commandments of God, and in so doing, you are loving, because that is love, to walk in his commandments. In fact, this is the commandment that you love. This is love, that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. Now, he also says that only some of the children are doing this, but remember, he says children, and so we're not talking about people who are not Christians. We're talking about Christians, children, who are not walking in love. And that means that there's a category by which you, you can fail to walk in the love in which you are commanded, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not the cost of your salvation, but it is at the cost of something. And John is going to talk about what the cost is to be a child of God who does not walk in love toward the brothers. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is co- the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, you should walk in it, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist, watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward." Now, this is a doctrine that I don't hear preached all that often, but I wonder if you guys have ever spent any time wondering and thinking about the rewards that you will gain in heaven. I heard C.S. Lewis teach on this one time, and it was beneficial to me. I'm going to super summarize. But he essentially said that we are all vessels to be filled to the brim with the grace and love of the Father. And that In heaven, if you just take your body off for a second, he imagined that we were all cups walking around in heaven and that every last cup was filled to overflowing with an uncarryable amount of grace and love from God, such that whether you were a thimble or a giant goblet, no one was, had feeling of lack because they could not contain one drop more of the love of God. And yet, as you looked out at the martyrs or at the original apostles or anything like that, that it would be clear to you that their vessel was of a certain size, that the grace of God was magnified in such a proportion that it caused those around to just worship him all the more. And I get the sense that he was on to something as he tried to paint this picture, that when I look at the tiny thimble just pouring out, overflowing with the grace and love of God, I am going to fall on my face and worship him all the more, that even a wretched sinner such as he could be filled with the love of God. And likewise, when by the power of the Spirit, he uses a man uh, with great faith to die for the faith, to be burned at the stake and all the rest, and he he pours out his glory in a double portion to overflow that cup that will fall on my face and worship to the king. What John has in focus here is the winning of a full reward. On the day of judgment, Christians will enter into the kingdom, but not as though, but only as through fire, is how Paul talks about it. It's a wonderful thing, but it essentially says that all of the things in this life that we built in futility upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles, that if anything that we we didn't build on that foundation will be burned up as we come into the presence of the Lord, as we enter into eternal life with him that we don't carry with us any of the worthlessness of this life, praise be to God. That everything that was wood, everything that was straw, everything that was hay, everything that was worthless is obliterated when we are welcomed into the eternal kingdom. And that's wonderful, but it's we only enter the kingdom as through fire, is how it's described, like a refining fire. And what John has in view here is heap up treasures in heaven seek the fullness of your reward in heaven. Adorn your crown with jewels that it may be yet more beautiful when you cast it at the feet of Jesus in his presence. Don't heap up worthlessness in this life, but heap up this love that we've been commanded to walk in in order that we might receive the fullness of our reward and not squander what we have received. He says that there are a people who are not only not doing this, but a people who have no reward at all in heaven. These people he calls deceivers. He calls them antichrists. Given how many new faces I see in the room this morning, I'll, I'll give a quick aside on antichrist. Christ is a word that means the anointed. Christ is a word that describes the Messiah. It's the Greek translation for the Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah so anti meaning against christ meaning messiah or anointed one of god means you are against the lord's anointed and so he says that the one who comes and does not confess the coming of jesus christ in the flesh that this one is a deceiver who has gone out into the world he is the deceiver and the antichrist who does this and you want to go back and listen to the teaching on the incarnation uh, from the letter of first john but John does a thorough treatment on this doctrine, and he says, your brother is the one who confesses that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah, and that he came bodily, lived for you, died for you, and rose for you unto eternal life. That's your brother, and the one who denies that is against him, and he wants to tell us how to handle that person. He says, watch yourselves, verse 8, So that you may not lose what we've worked for, but win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So he says, They're not your brother. If they've gone on ahead, if they've departed from the apostles, if they have left what Jesus taught first and foremost, if they are are not teaching the gospel that you have heard at first, that they've gone on ahead, and guys, this is still happening. So many have gone out ahead. They have added to the words of our Lord. They have added to the testimony of the apostles. They've gone out and said, I've got new revelation. There's a new way. There are whole religions and cults built on those who went out ahead. And the scriptures say this was even their intention, that they would go out and accumulate a following unto themselves, but it does not exalt Christ. He says, reject it. Everyone who goes on ahead does not abide in the teaching of Christ. He does not have God. Whoever does abide in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So, if anyone comes to you, verse 10, and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And so this traveling itinerant false preacher and heretic who comes among you and says, peace in Christ, and you assess him, and you're like, this is not the teachings of Christ. He says, do not aid him, do not abet him, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Some of us, in order to try to appear more loving, are receiving false teachers into our minds, into our lives, into our homes, and we are, and we are, in essence, affirming their false teaching by by um, aiding them by sh- kind of communicating through our actions that we are one, when in fact we are not, and that's dangerous, is what John has to say. You are unequivocally one with every last brother, John says. But you are not one if he is not your brother. And How do you know is he teaching the gospel of the incarnate Christ? Do not receive him into your house. Do not give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. We, do, we are not to be partakers in wicked works. Verse 12, I have much to write to you. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, this is where it gets pastoral again. He says, I think I've said enough. Sometimes I'll get a, a text from you guys, and you'll just be like, hey, can we meet? And I'll be like, give me something. Like, so I can understand, like, what I'm walking into when I show up, right? And, I'll, like, and we'll, like, I'll meet you for a coffee or whatever, and I'll just be like, I have no idea if I'm going like, to find out that like, your marriage is on the rocks or if you're like, just wanting to get a coffee. And so I'm always like, I just, this is like to me like the text that comes before the meeting. Like John's like, I got some stuff I got to talk to you guys about. I am coming, and I'm going to talk to you about it face to face. Here's a letter up front so that you know what we're going to be addressing. But I don't have to say it all right now because I'm coming, and we're going to talk face-to-face. And there's some real simple, practical wisdom to be gleaned there, I think, which some of us are trying to do the face-to-face over letter, and some of us are not doing the face-to-face at all, and some of us aren't sending the letter in advance and are just coming straight in with the face-to-face, and that's that the other party doesn't even know how to receive you or how to respond. There is a shepherdly and pastoral nature to the way that John is addressing his flock here, where he's giving them time in advance to think about what it is that he needs to talk to them about, and then he's coming to them to talk to them face-to-face, and that's wonderful, but I don't think that's the primary wisdom for you to glean from that. I want to hold out to you guys a warning from filling your minds and your heads too much with people who you will never meet face-to-face that the face-to-face interaction with John gave him every opportunity to clarify and clear up the things that he wrote, the things that he said. But every time that you consume in a one-way direction with a pastor or with a teacher, you have no ability to, he's not going to talk back to you and you're not going to talk back to him. And there's more danger in that type of relationship, one, because he does not know you, he does not love you, he does not know your name. Two. He does not not know whether or not you are receiving what he is saying in the way that he intended it and has no ability to clarify because he doesn't know in what ways you are confused. And three, you have no ability to ask him those questions or to challenge him in order to sharpen him or help him. It is far better for you to walk in community with the brothers and sisters who you know and to ask the hard questions and to engage in the teaching and to open your Bibles and to have these conversations face-to-face in order that, like it was intended biblically, iron would sharpen iron as you walk together into the presence of the Lord. And that's not in any way to say that there's something inherently wrong. About listening to a downloaded sermon. You should do that. Like there's so much good material out there. Read all the books and all the things, but understand that they pale in comparison to walking hand in hand with the local church and with your local shepherds in order that you can navigate the challenges of the Christian faith together. And he ends his letter in verse 13 like this: The children of your elect sister greet you. Verse 1, he calls them the elect, they calls that church the elect lady and her children. Verse 13, he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. And so you see this partnership and this love between two churches. He's among one body of believers writing this letter, and he's talking to them about this church, and they're delighting in that church together, and he's including in them, man, and they really love you, and they say, hey, talk to you soon. See you soon. And I think that in there, at least for the minimum, as a final point for us this morning, is that partnership between local churches is beautiful. That when I say to you that it is better for you to receive in person from the brothers and sisters who know you and who love you, that that's not meant to be your whole world either. That it's a good thing for you to know and love brothers and sisters from other local churches and to commune with them, to build them up, to to serve them and to love them, to send them encouragement. And so I wonder whether or not there's opportunity for you guys to think about, especially in a half-military context, I want you guys to remember Uh, This is just an example of that. There was a guy who was here. He might be here this Sunday. I didn't get to meet him, but somebody told me the story. He said somebody, a chaplain at Scott Air Force Base came to Mercy's Door because when he was stationed in London, that a former chaplain who was a member of Mercy's Door was stationed in Korea or Japan, ends up in London for a short stay, meets this other guy and says, when you get restationed to Scott, you need to check out Mercy's Door. And in that way, a guy is here because he met a former member of our church in London, and this keeps happening like, like because you guys just keep scattering all over the country and all over the world because half of you are military, but I wonder if you are considering what beautiful opportunity you have with just your number of churches you know because necessarily God moves you on every four years. You know so many churches so many brothers and sisters who you walked with for those four years, so many pastors who loved you over those four years, do you think, like John, to send that correspondence, to send that letter of encouragement, hey, I remember you, and I love you, and I'd delight to to talk about you, do you do that? Do you carry what was best about one church into your next church as an opportunity to say, hey, what I learned here, I want to give away to people that I can love over here? This was the nature of the first century church. It was the nature of the ministry of the apostles, and I'd love for us to, not, to get our eyes off of ourselves a little bit and say, okay, this isn't just about my election. This isn't just about my eternal life. I haven't been saved into a rogue Christianity. What John is describing is a family, an eternal family of Christ and how we can function within it to fend off those who would do harm to the people that, that Christ loves and to engage and encourage and build up those who he has redeemed. And so that's my challenge for you this morning. If you are military, when you get done here, I want you to think about someone you love from a former church, and I want you to write them a letter. You can send it in an email or a text if you've got to, but a handwritten letter would be sweet. If you are newer to Mercy's Door, I want you to think about those brothers and sisters who have walked with you before you got here, and I want you to check in with them. And then I want you to look to the people around you and be like, these are my eternal brothers and sisters. I'm going to know these folks forever. Might as well get started now. Show up to gospel community and wonder, how can I love these specific brothers and sisters in the lot that they are in? Because it was no mistake that God has you here during this season. Let's pray to that end now.